the way I try to eat most of the time helps me maintain not only my physical health, but my mental and spiritual health. What I'm excited about with Indigenous people getting back out onto the land and harvesting plants, that's such a healthy thing and I wish more people could experience that. I hope people can integrate harvesting into the healing process. So instead of being just in a building, focusing on you know, maybe why you've come into an addiction, maybe you can get on the land and, and allow some of these plant nations to help heal you too. That's Jenny Lassard, one of Canada's leading chefs and a proud member of the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan. She's going to be sharing what she knows about Indigenous cooking and harvesting from the land on this episode of Minobamadzwin, a podcast brought to you by the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. I'm your host, Sherry Huff, a proud member of El Napawi Lakawit, the home of the Lenape in southwestern Ontario. I manage communications for Thunderbird, which includes hosting this podcast. Minupamadzuan means living the good life in the language of the Anishinaabe. We chose that as a name for our podcast because a good life is what we all hope for. This podcast aims to seek and share insights about addictions and mental health issues that many of our families and communities are dealing with. We're doing that by connecting with leading experts in Indigenous wellness. Before we get to our guest, I'd like to invite you to check out our new Thunderbird Wellness app. It takes a cultural approach to support health and wellness for First Nations. It's grounded in Indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing, connecting with our inherent strengths to support a return to wellness, to live a good life, Mino Bamadzuan. You can find the link to the Mino Bamadzuan podcast on our website, thunderbirdpf.org, or just download it directly from the App Store or Google Play. Now, on to today's episode. I sure hope you've had something to eat, because this next conversation is likely going to make you hungry. We're going to explore how food is medicine, how food can support our wellness. We're absolutely thrilled to have Chef Jenny Lassard as our guest. In addition to running her own company, Inspired by Nature, Jenny is the Indigenous Culinary Consultant at Winnesquewin Heritage Park in Saskatoon, the Secretary of the Indigenous Culinary of Associated Nations, and currently lives in Saskatchewan's Capel Valley, Treaty 4 Territory and Homeland of the Métis. Chef Jenny, welcome to Minobamadzewin. Thank you so much, Sherry. It's great to be here. <laughs> so you heard my introduction talking about how food is medicine, and I saw on the on the screen here, and I, I, I wish people could see uh, the camera when I do here when we record these podcasts, but you just broke out in a big grin. How <laughs> is food medicine? How can it support our wellness? Well, I think the reason I was grinning is I took a little sip of tea from my mug and my mug is made by a Métis artist from Regina named Carly King. And the clay comes from around here. The earth comes from around here. I harvested the mint from around here. The water is from here. So as I took a sip of that, I was like, I guess I'm taking my medicine right during this podcast because knowing, you know, everything that's going into your body, including who made the vessel that's holding the liquid or the food, to me, that's such a magnificent thing. And I, I understand that not everybody has that opportunity. So I was just smiling in, in joy at what was 
happening as you were describing food as medicine. And it's really important that we we ground our our food in the the territory and in the land that we're from. And so much of our food when you go to the grocery store today can be from the other side of the world. Why is it we why is it important for for us to get the freshest food close to home that is, you know, to support our own wellness? Well, I think it, first of all, it, it just makes sense, doesn't it, to eat the food that grows right around you. I grew up north of La Ronge, Saskatchewan, just about 10 kilometers north and then um, about a half a kilometer into the bush by a little lake. And I remember growing up and seeing, you know, we had blueberries growing all over the place. We had mint down by the lake in the fall. Later in the fall, we had low bush cranberries and my mom would cook with all that all that good stuff and I started picking it at an early age and I always wondered why isn't that in our store like when and you know I'm a child of the 70s so I didn't see a mango till I was probably 15 so we didn't have the huge selection of food from around the world that we do today but um, most you know people in the community harvested their own berries and you know and in August and September the freezers would be full but I always kind of wondered like why isn't it a bigger deal on a wider scale to eat the foods from our land and you know in school when we'd have anything at school back then it was always on white bread and a little bit of mustard and some bologna which I mean I'm not going to say no to a bologna sandwich but <laughs> who cares <laughs> who exactly can? <laughs> um, there, there wasn't a lot of culinary cultural in- integration when I was a kid especially in the education system but I guess yeah it just it just makes sense from a financial point of view from what it can do for you to be out there with your family and friends harvesting food that's going to sustain you through the winter and our winters are very cold and I think I I think but I don't know like I've lived in Saskatchewan my whole life I had you know a little stint in Alberta but mostly in Saskatchewan I've never lived in another country and I know when I travel and I eat the amazing foods from the land when my friends in those countries share about the ingredients and the story of how the the food is grown or harvested their faces just shine because it's like they're introducing me to a relative and I I can get excited about all kinds of food from all over the world but I get most excited about the food that's from right here on our land so I think it is kind of like it's part of us it not only goes into us and nourishes us and goes through us but it becomes part of us those flavors and those textures and those colors it took me a while sherry when i moved to southern saskatchewan from northern saskatchewan to become a saskatoon girl rather than a blueberry girl because i grew up eating (laughs) eating mostly blueberries but even just that right like it was such a big change to where are the blueberries they're not here and the blueberries in the store of course didn't taste anything like the blueberries that i grew up eating no kidding. And and that I understand that that your cooking style now that you're a chef is very much rooted in the local ingredients, harvesting local ingredients. How how did you go from, you know, being a girl who went down to the lake to harvest her own mint and and grabbing some blueberries from the local blueberry patch to being a chef using those local ingredients? What inspired you to move in that direction? Well, I always knew that I wanted to feed people. I feel like that's kind of my my calling because whenever I'm in a group, I'm the one that's kind of organizing what we're going to eat next. And (laughs) I never get sick of cooking. And I feel like 
my job is kind of to feed and nourish people in this life. So I always knew I wanted to do that. I didn't really think I was going to do it and start a restaurant when I had a, a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, but I did it for financial reasons. I needed to support my kids. I was working as a freelance writer in a small town of a thousand people. The nearest city was about 40 kilometers away. And I, my skills were cooking and baking. I remember taking uh, my six-month-old on my back in a backpack to the Prince Albert Farmer's Market. And my mom and I had a, a table there at the Farmer's Market. And uh, she did um, bannock and cookies and pies and coffee. And I did soup and bread. And that's how people kind of started to know about my cooking. And I, I used local ingredients because that's what I had. I had a big rhubarb plant, so there was a lot of rhubarb in the things I did. I even made a chicken rhubarb soup. <laughs> and, and we would go picking berries for our pies. So it was, for me, it was economical and it was just what, where my resources were. Crab apples, I used a lot of that in my cooking. And then there came up, an opportunity came up to rent a very small space, 14 seats in a, our local, you know, the building in a small town that kind of has everything. So it had the the bus station, the Sears Depot, the Watkins dealership, I think a pet grooming place, a hair salon and a laundromat. And then <laughs> and then this little spot in the front. So um, I signed a, a lease on that and I, um, I would have two different soups a day, one with meat and one without meat. And then I um, called my aunt for her bannock recipe, kind of messed it up, but again, didn't have a lot of money. So I just had to kind of add a little of this and a little of that. So um, that was on the menu and I don't think Bannock had ever been served in that in that town before in a commercial sense. I wanted to bring, although you know we can have lots of discussions about is Bannock an indigenous food? Well it is now so let's, <laughs> you know that's how we, a lot of us, what we enjoy and what, how we, how we were celebrate, raised. how we were raised and it's good it's a really, you know it's a an easy economical way thing to make and feed your family. So anyway, this town, which is now called Birch Hills, was originally called Harperview for the Métis people that came to live there. But by the time I moved there, there was, you know, there was not even a street sign referencing the origins of this town. So I thought, okay, well, let's, let's have some Métis flavor here. So <laughs> of course I wasn't allowed to use um, you know, wild meat, so duck, rabbit. If I did, I had to buy it from the store. So most of that comes from Quebec. So anytime I would have an event and, you know, the rabbit would be on the menu or duck, I usually got a call or a visit from the health inspector shortly after if it had made it into the media looking into my freezers to make sure that I wasn't serving. And I said, I don't have a trap line. I'm running a restaurant and I have two little kids. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not that talented. But, um, so I tried to include as many foods from the north as I can. And then I was also learning the, you know, what was available down south, which is technically kind of central Saskatchewan, but I, you know, I considered it down south from where I was raised. So it just made sense to me from a, you know, an economical point of view. And it excited me. So I always want to be, I mean, I've had to, I've been cooking professionally for 18, well, longer, if you count my stints before I had kids, but I you have to always cook some things that don't really excite you because it's what the clients want or what you know what you need to do but most of the food that I make it's because it really revs me up like if I'm making a wild rice cinnamon bun and I know that the wild rice is coming from um, First Nations and Dene wild rice harvesters and then it's 
roasted at the Larange wild rice plant. And I'm just so excited about that cinnamon bun. And when I started the restaurant, I had, um, I used Red River cereal because I wanted to really overtly put that Métis culture out there. And now that uh, I don't think Red River cereal is even made anymore. So I use wild rice in that cinnamon bun. So things kind of change and adapt as, as the career goes on. But I got to try that wild rice cinnamon bun. I have never yeah. heard of that. That sounds amazing. Well, we Two just ingredients came up with I it love. Last, last weekend. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> How can you go wrong? <laughs> And butter and sugar, Sherry? Like, oh, that's, gosh. wow, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't, I wasn't kidding when I started off this conversation saying that if you, if you weren't hungry before, you're definitely going to be hungry now, having to, talk, talking about cinnamon bun and wild rice recipes. My gosh. <laughs> now, Jenny, I understand you're, you're, you credit your late grandma um, as one of your cooking mentors. What was it about her that, that inspired you? Could you share a story there? Well, my grandma lived in PA, Prince Albert, for those of you who <laughs> aren't from Saskatchewan. And she had a tiny little house with a backyard that was almost entirely garden. So we all know that, well, maybe you don't all know, but Métis people are wonderful gardeners. Yeah, I did um, not know that. Some people even have the last name Gardener. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if that's connected, but... Um, so she had a beautiful garden and all summer long we ate from her garden whether it was just a simple green salad with a she called it a white dressing so it was i think coleslaw dressing or like mayonnaise with a tiny little bit of sugar and some celery seeds and that would be on that bright green lettuce mm. um, she made something called barber's dinner that was all the new vegetables so tiny baby potatoes peas carrots those little tiny onions, and then she'd make a white sauce. So again, very economical, but it tasted like heaven. Like I don't, I've never had anything that good in all the places I've visited and all the kitchens I've, I've eaten at. So she just fed us all from that little garden and she had a cold room where she did all her canning. She would save her cheese whiz jars and then she would can her, her pears and my uncle had a fruit stand in Jasper, so at the end of the season, he'd bring her all the kind of extra fruit and she'd can that all up. So she was kind of, oh, and her homemade bread. Oh my goodness, it was so good. <laughs> so just simple, her hamburger soup, simple, mm. good, delicious, aromatic food. And you could walk into her house and nothing would be cooking. And then, you know, five minutes later, you'd smell supper which I think was just her frying onions to make us think that it was getting closer. But <laughs> so she that always a, draws you in anyway, when you hear, when you smell yeah, that frying onions. <laughs> exactly. But I think what it was and what, what uh, kind of motivated me to not just put out a pretty plate and, you know, try to get good reviews about the, the food or the presentation, because I'm not, I'm not a really refined chef. I wouldn't say like I've learned how to, how to plate and do presentation as I've gone along. But my main goal is to feed people. And that happens before you get to the table. So grandma would always lay the table with a, it was a round table. So if there were a lot of us, she'd have to put in a few extensions. And she had a nice uh, blue and white checkered cloth. And if there were a lot of us, she put a big white cloth underneath and then kind of angle that one. She always set the table. There was no kind of just grabbing a bowl. And she really made that meal an experience for us. So when I had the restaurant, that's what I wanted to do is I wanted a place where people could come and just feel taken care of. And as my grandma would say, oh, this is so nourishing. 
So I wanted them to feel <laughs> nourished, which is interesting because I later started, um, did some work with a project called the Nourish Project. So I thought, okay, grandma. <laughs> but not just, yeah. And then also one thing I learned from her is, and from my mom too, is that you don't cook angry. You want to get everything kind of right within yourself. I remember my mom used to hum a lot when she was cooking. And I realized now that was probably just so she could settle herself down. And, and if she was stressed or angry, kind of let that all go so she could present a good meal without all that stuff getting into the food. I find too that sometimes when you're cooking, just getting into that Zen place, it's like a happy place. You know, it, it yeah, is, yeah. it does make you feel better when you know you're cooking a good meal. You've been, you know, you've, you've gone and pulled some things from the garden and you're, you're going to be cooking your family something that's going to, you know, nourish them. Like your grandma said, you know, it's going to help them keep their, keep their wellness and, and stay healthy. And she was lucky, or I was lucky enough that she lived to see me open the restaurant. My Aunt Ruth didn't, but she would have absolutely loved it because she loved having coffee with people and she would have loved that her bannock, well, kind of her bannock, I did end up, <laughs> I actually used half whole wheat flour and half white flour. So it's it's a little bit, has a little bit more fiber, but um, it's definitely not a traditional looking bannock, but she would have been really happy that that happened too. And and it's just really interesting. And now my um, my kids and my my niece will call me or text me and say, "Hey, you know, there's some dandelions coming up. Like, what do you think I could do with those?" Or so I feel like the knowledge that was kind of halted because my female relatives married European men, and then you know mostly want had to cook or didn't have to, but I don't know if they had to or not. They ended up cooking a lot of foods from their cultures, and the harvesting piece in my family, that was never passed down to me from my relatives. I learned that because of the area that I was fortunate enough to grow up in, in Larange, from the First Nations people that lived there, and also from um, my involvement with Wanuskewan Heritage Park. They, that's where I really was taught how to harvest with using proper protocols and tobacco offerings. And I kind of went, oh, I, I just knew in my heart I was supposed to be doing that, but I didn't know how. So I had been giving, I had a song come to me when I was about, I don't know, when I first started the restaurant, so I was about 33 or something, I was harvesting something and, and the song just came to me. So that's what I would, I would sing the song when I was harvesting. And then when I went to Wanuskewin, which is, a, um, it's been a gathering place for, people for over 6,000 years and now it's a, a world a heritage site, National Historic Site and it's on the short list to become um, UNESCO World Heritage Site as an interpretive centre. Um, but I was asked to come in in about 2017 and, and harvest for the creation of a, a dinner series on the land and Ashley Rabbitskin was the interpreter, the visitor services guide that took me all along the valley and showed me what was growing, what would be growing later on, and showed me how to lay down tobacco as a thank you to the plant nations. So it's kind of been like a journey that started in a certain way, and then it's just added layers and layers of experience have been added on. I don't consider myself an expert in any way in in this. I'm a, I'm a learner, and I'm open to being corrected and, and unlearning some things that I thought I knew too. Yeah. I wanted to talk about, you know, the the kind of season we're in right now and, and what kind of things you're looking at. So 
we are we are nearing the end of spring, uh, heading into summer. Although it's been a it's been a late spring for a lot of places. Where you are right now in in southern Saskatchewan, what are you harvesting from the land right now? Like, what are you looking forward to to harvesting, and what are you looking forward to harvesting for the summer where you are? Well, it is a very late season, so I have an event that I'm doing as a collaboration. Um, there's an, an art opening at the Reme Center uh, Museum in Saskatoon and the amazing artist Adrian Stimson has a, an exhibit. So we're doing kind of um, a, a menu around the bison and seasonal ingredients. So I'm, I need to, by, you know, in a few months time, have in a few months, a couple of weeks time, have rose petals, so wild rose petals, nettle, I have chives in my garden, so that's, that's all right, <laughs> um, spruce tips, and what else so that those are those are the kind of the first four crops to or you know things that i harvest are the spruce tips rose petals um nettle which i can harvest almost up into mid july before it gets too tall and what was the other thing i said oh dandelion greens i'm harvesting a lot of dandelion greens so what do you do with those things Oh, so many things, Sherry. So I like to put them in my bullet soup, which I think isn't very traditional. There's not usually green things in the in that meatball soup, but I just find that adding that little bit of greens, it, it gives you um, color in the soup, and then it also helps you absorb the iron in the meat. So I just love using um, dandelion greens in that. I just came up with a, a recipe last week where I made a it was supposed to be to go beside pickerel, but people ended up using it as a, a veggie dip, which was fine too. A dandelion sunflower dip with just a little bit of mayo, olive oil mayo, uh, roasted sunflower seeds, a little bit of garlic, blanched dandelions, and a little bit of salt and pepper and just whip that up in a blender. Wow. And, oh, it was a lovely green and just nice and crunchy. Wow. Now, and then I, I drink even... the water from the down. So I try not to waste any water that's kind of a one of the elders that's been helping me in the last couple of years a Métis elder she kind of phoned me one day or I think she Facebook messaged me and she said Jenny I've been thinking about water in your cooking and you know where you get your water what you cook your food in it makes so much difference and that kind of really stuck with me so I try to use any of the cooking liquids as long as it's kind of food safe to do so in other components of the meal so when I blanch the dandelion greens, which you do to kind of, you know, sanitize them, but also so that they don't, they're not all stringy when you blend them up. It's the water is this gorgeous light green color. So I drink that as a tea oh, wow. or, or cool it and um, make a nice tea with it. Wow. And what delicious. do you do? What do you do with the spruce tips? I didn't even know you could eat spruce tips to first spruce off. Spruce tips are amazing. Yeah. So you can... They're, they're bright green, so the rest of the spruce tree will be, you know, that gorgeous, dark, kind of bluey, emerald color. And then at this time of the year, a little bit later, of course, in the north, you'll see these, like, it's a totally different color than the rest of the tree. So there's no confusing <laughs> what what is the new growth and what isn't. And it starts out looking like, a, almost like a little pineapple on the end of the branch. Mm -hmm. So it's all closed up and kind of brown and then almost overnight you'll just whoa there they are and they're soft and they almost feel rubbery when you touch them and yeah. if you put that in your mouth sherry they're sour like a not like a lemon not like a lime but just a really tart delicious flavor 
Wow. So you can just chop those up and put them in a salad. I make a pesto with them with oh a little bit gosh. of oil and sunflower seeds. I love sunflower seeds. I love them. Um, and I, I often pickle them too. So I just make a little brine with, I like using juniper in my pickle brine. So a bay leaf, juniper, some apple cider vinegar, water, salt, and a little bit of maple syrup. Bring that to a boil and then just toss the spruce tips in at the last minute coat it they'll change color a little bit you don't want to cook them because you want to keep all that vitamin c most of the crops right. that the crops the plants that emerge first first in the spring are full of vitamin c and doesn't that make sense because what would our mm -hmm. body be lacking mm -hmm. um the and then time right yeah a lot of people ask like oh my goodness i feel so you know you know i have to gather all the stuff in season and i don't have room in my fridge and I can't do a bunch of canning a lot of times I'll freeze those spruce tips on a cookie sheet and then um, you know put them in a container after and just keep them and work with them as I need they're not quite as springy of course as they would be um, be before I go any further I just want to talk about not over harvesting is so mm -hmm. important absolutely taking only what you need taking and, only what you yeah. need and that's that's really super important and and where you're going so I'm really lucky right now that I live on a, a large part of land and our landlord has okayed me to go harvest anywhere on this on this property. So in my backyard, I have choke cherries, I have uh, spruce tips and Saskatoon berries, I have um, breadroot, all kinds of stuff. So, but even though it's like, I wouldn't say technically mine, I don't like saying that because the land isn't mine, but um, I make sure that I don't stress that plant. So I think that's why you need to get into a really calm mindset. I don't go harvesting anything if I'm in a hurry and I, oh, I need to get seven cups of choke cherries for this workshop or whatever. I make sure I'm, you know, quite calm because I don't know, you can almost sense what the plant, sometimes I go to harvest something and I just get a, I get told like, don't touch me. You know how sometimes you don't want to be touched? Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're just like, get away. That's enough. I don't want, sometimes that plant will, I've felt that most strongly with juniper, but um, it's just that maybe it's, that's not ready yet, or it's been, you know, some birds have already had a good snack on it that day. So then I'll just back off and not, not bother it that day. I'm really glad you said that because, you know, it is a good reminder. And, and like you said, when, you know, you're learning the protocols for putting down tobacco and, and first, you know, thanking and asking, you know, the plant to share, um, you know, its berries or, or its, its spruce tips or whatever it is that you're, you're hoping to share and, and asking for that, that um, plant to, to, to do that. And also being mindful of not over harvesting, spreading out, you know, um, your harvest over, a, a, a bigger area, not taking too much from one plant. You know, I, I think of that with fiddleheads because we harvest fiddleheads in behind our place. And, oh, and I, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. And I'm teaching my family, like, you know, only take one or two from each plant. Exactly. Don't take all of them so that, that that'll come back next year. The plant has enough to grow, you know, and, and keep producing so that we can continue to share, you know, in, in that harvest every year. And that's why I think indigenous people should be the leaders in, any wild harvesting and selling of these products because it's this these are the people that have been doing this on the land for thousands and thousands of years and even as a, a Métis person person with Métis ancestry I will defer to a First Nations person who tells me something because I'm like you have been here longer 
Um, so, and I'll learn a lot, a lot of things just by being told, hey, that's, that's not right. Or, you know, maybe do it this way. The other thing is, I think like last year we had, a, it was very dry as it was in a lot of places and there were not very many choke cherries around. And I had a lot that I had harvested. So I was able to gift some to a whole bunch of different organizations. And I think that's important too. That kind of goes with the, you know, with the hunting too, as you, you distribute where it's needed. So not being selfish with the ingredients that I don't sell any of the ingredients that I that I harvest. I just use it in my workshops and some of the special menus I do. Right. So let me ask you, do you believe food is medicine? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> I think that the way I try to eat most of the time helps me maintain my not only my physical health but my mental and spiritual health and for me and what i would like to what i'm excited about with um, indigenous people getting back out onto the land and and harvesting plants and adding to their economic growth but also getting out onto the land that's such a healthy thing and i wish more people could experience that i would love to go out with groups and just do what used to be done. Like, I feel like I'm looking up at this hill behind my house and I think probably, you know, less than 200 years ago, there would have been groups of ladies gathering berries in these hills. And it was, you know, I think it probably was a wonderful social time, a time to tell stories, a time to strengthen your muscles and breathe and laugh and maybe swear a little bit when you get a stick in your eye. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> I just think it's something that we, we've, a lot of us have lost. And it's, I hope people can integrate harvesting into the healing process. So, you know, instead of being just in a building, focusing on, you know, maybe why you've come into an addiction, maybe you can get on the land and, and allow some of these plant nations to help heal you too. We are seeing more and more um, programs and communities doing that and, and oh, requesting so cool. that land-based healing because yeah. The, it, yeah. it is so good. It is so good for your wellness. It's, it's good for everything, like you just said, our mental wellness, our, our connection, our sense of belonging, you know, our, our ability to, to reconnect to family, to community members and get that food, that, you know, access the yeah. foods that nourish our, our soul, our spirits, right? Yeah, you're doing so many things at one time when you're harvesting food and that connection too. like when I work with choke cherries, I think, OK, my grandma, my well, my mom didn't really work, work with them because she moved up north when I was quite little. But, you know, my grandma worked with choke cherries. Her mom worked with choke cherries, blah, blah, blah. Like it's just for some reason, that particular plant just makes me feel so connected and rooted. And I actually have a an experience that happened to me when I was harvesting in the Apimaha Valley at Wanaskewin. It's not, people can't go there and, and pick things generally, but for teaching purposes and for these few dinners that we do a season, I'm able to harvest there. So I was looking for choke cherries that day and the tree that I usually go to was just picked clean and I thought, oh, like birds must have got there. I guess I'll go do something else. And then I just kind of got a little voice that said, just keep walking. So I kept walking. And then my feet took me to the site of the old um, bison processing area where the women would pull the, the animal from the bison jump across to the processing area. Of course, they'd have to work 
probably fairly quickly to deal with that large animal. So I stood there and I was just thinking, kind of imagining all these women and what they would have had to be, what they would have had for tools and what they would have been wearing and the laughing. And, and then all of a sudden my right arm just kind of lifted up in front of me and moved over to the side and my arm was pointing right at a big chokecherry bush just filled with chokecherries. And then in my head, I could hear women laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought, well, isn't that funny? Like, the <laughs> And wouldn't you laugh at someone who was wandering around and couldn't see the chokecherries that were like right in front of them? So I thought, well, that's, that's really, that's really cool. And I, in that moment, I felt connected to women no kidding. who, you know, weren't my ancestors either, but they were there guiding you had a good sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> now you, you, you talked about bison there. Now I, I understand oh, yeah. that, 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 that something happened with the bison that, that you had a incredibly spiritual experience when, when the bison were returned to the land where you are. Can you talk about that? I can. Um, I was executive chef after I did my kind of guest chef stints there. I had the opportunity to become executive chef at Wanuskewin in August 2019 and of course just before everything shut down and the bison were returned to the land, two, two separate um, deliveries of bison and I was able to be there and cook for the group that was gathered when the first um, set of bison were brought back and I still think that was the most significant meal I've ever cooked for a group and I was just so glad to be there in that moment of time because a lot of these elders and people that had been working on the project and the park founder Dr. Ernie Walker and you know the bison handler and all these people that came together indigenous people and non-indigenous people to bring these amazing animals back to the land they needed to be fed because whenever there's a special occasion you need to be fed so um, I was really happy to be there on that, on that day. So I didn't actually go up and see the bison being released into their new home that day because I was in the kitchen and we made um, stew and bannock, two different kinds of bannock and berries. And it was just so cool to be there. And then when the second set came, I went up with the, um, the CEO, Darlene Brander, and a bunch of the other female staff. And we all had our ribbon skirts on. It was cold. It was December. December 17th, 2019, and they opened the back of that trailer and they just, the bull came, or was it the mother? One of them just came racing out, just like, wow. you know, they're coming home. Wow. And we all stood there and there was a, a drum circle and it was just, the, the whole energy of the park and the land changed when the bison came back. That's so so that, cool. was, that was really interesting and um, the the main focus of our dinner that we do on the land at Wanuskewa and the Honwee dinner is is based around the bison. So, and I know like some people say, well, how can you how can you cook bison and have bison on the menu when the bison are at the park? And I'm like, well, but they were never pets. Like, this is this is the whole part of the animal is what people used and what what fed us and nourished us. And and yes, I I think people would have a right to be upset if we weren't respecting the whole animal and we weren't. You know, every time I slice that bison tenderloin for the dinner, I am just overcome with emotion, like thanking this 
mighty animal for the opportunity to be feeding people you know something that's going to nourish them body mind and soul and when I had COVID my the first thing I could taste again after about three weeks of tasting nothing was bison I had made some um, bullet soup with bison meatballs and bit into that and I thought oh like isn't that kind of fitting that that was the first thing I could taste again because they just do so much for us it's like that balance too you know where we don't we don't, we're part of the, the land, we're part of the environment, just like the bison is part of the environment and there's give and take. When we pass, you know, our body goes back to the earth and then becomes grass and dirt and grass and the bison eat the grass. So it's kind of like, you know, we're all kind of part of that, that cycle, right? Yes. At least that's how I kind of picture it. Yeah. And I've had times in my life when I was vegetarian and I think it was because I didn't really understand that so much. I just felt bad. Like I felt like, what, what, what right do I have to take the life of this animal? But the more I've, I find out about, you know, indigenous cuisine and about how, how people lived and just, it, it all makes more sense. But I, I don't regret taking that pause from eating meat because now I have even more appreciation for the, the fish and the bison and the, sometimes beef that I eat and rabbit. Yeah, and it's always good to be mindful that, that this is a, was a living, a living being, you know, and, yeah. and to not eat mindlessly, you know, to be thankful and to give that thanks, right? Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your latest project. What are you up to these days? Well, I just started a project in northwest Saskatchewan. Waterhead First Nation just purchased Water's Edge Eco Lodge, which is in Meadow Lake Provincial Park, and a water hen is part of the Meadow Lake Tribal Council. So this happened last week, so it's a very new project. So the land that the lodge is on was, you know, traditionally occupied by what are now water hen First Nation members. So it was really emotional to have that community announcement and have people that grew up on that land so, and we're starting from the from the ground up with a culinary program. There are 21 uh, Waterhen members that are taking the Tourism Saskatchewan training, which includes like guiding, food safety, line cook, prep cook, housekeeping, all of that stuff. So we're going to keep the the money in the community. And then I will, I'm creating the initial menus and I'm sure once my time is up there, someone else will come along and be able to put their stamp on it. But and then with that, um, there's a, an organization at LaRange called Boreal Heartland. So they're a non-timber forest product economic development agency. So that's a lot of words, but it basically means um, harvesting and selling ingredients from the land, hiring First Nations and Métis people to do so. And they have um, a board of elders that kind of lets them know, you know, where they should harvest and where they shouldn't. And they off offer a heritage harvester program that's going to be taught to the staff at the lodge. So if we need to go harvest uh, muskeg tea or Labrador tea, we can go out and do it and we know what to do and what not to do and how to sustainably do that. So it's pretty exciting. It's a lot of different and, you know, we're using fish from from Isla Cross and Wild Rice from NWC Wild Rice Company from harvesters in that area. So I, I think um, Jesse Moore and the interim manager and the, the, the person that kind of got along with the economic development team at Waterhen First Nation and Devin Fiddler, they got it all together. And I remember him saying when he tasted that Wild Rice cinnamon bun, he said, this is what ownership tastes like. 
Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, the, the wild rice grower had been to the lodge the day before and Meadow Lake Tribal Council owns a percentage of the, the wild rice plant. So it's just like, you know, we're sharing these ingredients. We're not over harvesting them. We're sharing them with people and every plate will have a story. Absolutely. And the pride that people have, you know, having yeah. that involvement. And, and like you said, that, that, that glow that they get, that excitement they get sharing their foods, their ingredients from their territory, that, that just can't be matched. That, that's amazing. It can't. And it's actually funny, too, because I, you know, I, I, I think I know things, kind of. And I remember I, I, I made a, what my version of bullet soup. And then everybody kind of looked at it and they said, what do you think this is? And, and their version is more like rubaboo, like more like a stew. So it's interesting, even just going like a little bit to a, a different community, you know, a few hundred kilometers away, people do things differently. And, and it's really important to respect that and not be this person from outside that says, this is the way we're going to do it. So I'm learning, I'm learning a lot and it's, it's humbling and it's fun and exciting and delicious. Okay. I got I got to ask you, are you saying bullet soup, like bullet, put a, put a bullet in a yeah, gun kind like, of bullet soup? Like, I've so, never heard of it. <laughs> uh, they... My French is not good, despite my last name. It, they're just little tiny meatballs, but um, les boulettes means, I believe it means meatball in French. So they're tiny little meatballs and it's a root vegetable soup. Um, my grandma made it without the meatballs, just with the potatoes and the turnips and the broth. And then other people have, you know, you could do moose meat or, you know, some people do beef and pork, bison if you're in an area that has bison. So yeah, there's no bullets involved. And I thought originally that it was because the, the, you know, maybe the meatballs look like shotgun pellets, but it's not. It's just because of the French name for meatballs. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, thank yeah. you for that explainer. I, I You know what? It kind of sounds a little bit like, you know, our hamburger soup or like a, a beef vegetable or venison. Yeah. We eat a lot of venison here, moose. You know, once in a while when we have relatives that come down from the north with some moose meat, but mm. a lot of venison in our territory in southern Ontario. Yum. I have to say moose meat is my favorite meat of all time. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> moose so, steak with, with French onion soup mix. <laughs> yes. In, in you got to have cooker. that French onion. Oh, absolutely. That's the best. That's the best way to, to cook yeah. wild foods. Same thing with venison. Throw in your French onion soup mix in the slow cooker and you're going to be in heaven in a I few know. hours. <laughs> it's so, and it smells so good. Oh, oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we can't serve, we can't serve wild meat at. Right. In commercial establishments in Saskatchewan, I think in Newfoundland you are able to. Um, there may be some, I think, in on communities, like actually in mm -hmm. um, on reserve you can, but it's... Unfortunately, we can't do that at this time. Because of health regulations, right? Yeah, yeah, they mm -hmm. need to. But I, I, part of my work with ICAN, the Indigenous Culinary of Associated Nations, is that we want to kind of do some advocacy and lobbying work towards that. Absolutely. Because and I can we... see why it's not. Like, yeah. I, you know, we wouldn't want to stress a, an animal population. There's certain... You know things that have to be accounted for for food safety but i think we yeah like how can you really serve indigenous cuisine if you can't serve the meat from the, the meat. land that you know like when i so when i buy duck that was raised in quebec it's not going to taste the same as a duck that flew over and ate wild rice from the lake and right and those grasses that are right where we're where we're living 
Right. And that's, I think that kind of goes back to, you know, in a way, it kind of reminds me of colonial approaches. Yeah. That we need to knock down those colonial practices and that colonial oversight, put in the measures, the safety measures and, and all the requirements to make sure that the, the harvest is done in a good way. But, you know, our people know how to do it that way. Our oh, people, sure. you know, already do. And, and it's time that that changes. And I'm really glad to hear that, you know, that there is, that you're involved in, in, in hopefully changing that moving forward. Yeah, and even outdoor cooking, like I, I understand that, you know, the health inspector needs to come and needs to certify your kitchen. But, you know, can we maybe work towards having a public health certified traditional outdoor kitchen where we're smoking meat and we're smoking fish and, you know, processing berries and things like that out in the open air because there's something different about food that's prepared that way. Oh, yeah. And under under a tarp or whatever it is. But it's, yeah, I mean, I've never become sick from eating traditional foods, but I have had a few different instances eating lunch meat and... <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> fast food. So yeah, or even some fine restaurants. You oh can, my goodness! You, know, you I can think get one of the poisoning. world's largest food poisoning events was at a Michelin-starred restaurant. Right. But, right. Yeah. So, so I mean, that's exactly right. So mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting thing, and I know there's a lot of chefs out there that are just doing it. I don't want to get anybody mm -hmm. in trouble, but they're just saying, you know, no, I'm not. I know that the food I'm serving is clean. I know how to work with it because I've been. I've been taught that and I've worked at it and, and they're just doing it and feeding people and giving them that experience. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'd like to, to, to end the podcast with a, with a question that I like to ask all our guests. And, and that is, you know, to ask you to think about hope and what brings you hope as a chef, as a woman who knows the land, who, who works with the land to, to, to feed people, to nourish people. What brings you hope at the end of the day? Well, I think hope is like a like a snowball in a way. Like you just keep rolling that <laughs> rolling that ball around and it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So each experience that I have with um, you know, cooking these amazing foods and the different organizations that I work with and different workshops and meeting um, especially indigenous women from different communities across Saskatchewan and across the world actually that that snowball keeps growing you have to keep having the experiences to keep that hope flame lit so if you just kind of do a little bit of it and then stop and you know go off in another direction i think you kind of that hope goes out but if you can see that oh my goodness now the hospitals are starting to get into this well isn't that interesting oh and the media is interested in talking about the hospitals getting into this food so now people are going to know about it and ask for it and you know ask for accountability about well we did this project where's the food and you know people can go to a, a resort a you know world-class resort that's owned by a first nation and they can have food that is memorable and delicious and is right from that area like all these experiences that i see happening that i'm not like i'm not responsible for but that i'm part of that gives me so much hope mm, that's awesome and just eating the food. <laughs> and just eating the food. Absolutely. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Taking my medicine. <laughs> Take your medicine. That's right. Take your berries. Exactly. Take your berries. Well, Chef Jenny, you know, this has just been an absolute joy. And I sure hope one day that you and I can, can meet face to face over a meal, a good meal. 
and carry on this conversation. You're, you're just an absolute gem. Anishik for joining us. Oh, merci. Thank you so much. Well, of course, you know, I've been talking to Chef Jenny Lassard, and she is a chef, a Métis chef, located in the Fort Capel Valley in Saskatchewan. If you enjoyed this episode or this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating and write a review. You know, the more good feedback we get on those reviews, the wider the audience reach is for us. And that kind of helps us spread the word. And so everyone can hear interviews like the one we just had. So thank you, Anishik. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit our website at thunderbirdpf.org. Thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. If you can search for us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Thunderbird PF. Lapi Anishik, thanks again for listening. Until next time, I'm Sherry Huff. <laughs>